Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. This is a show where we talk about building ambitious yet sane startups. And this week, I had a great time answering listener questions with Laura Roeder from Meet Edgar. We talked through questions about managing annual subscriptions, going low-priced versus high, being a non-developer founder, and we talked through more listener questions. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 473. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us. It's the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing startups. Whether you've built your fifth startup or you're thinking about your first. I'm Rob, and today with Laura Roeder, we're going to share our experiences to help you avoid the mistakes we've made. Welcome back to the show. This is the show where we focus on indie-funded and self-funded startups, folks who want to do interesting things and are ambitious and want to build themselves a better life, but also want to build companies that, that grow. And starting a company is hard. And having this community of people who are going through the same thing that you are and having that sense of belonging and knowing A, that it's possible, but B, that there's a place where we can all hang out and, and just get each other and where you don't go in and explain what you do and everyone looks at you funny, there's a tremendous amount of value to that. And that was a big reason why we started this podcast almost 10 years ago back in 2010. Startups for the Rest of Us has many episode formats. Sometimes I just have conversations with folks, do interviews. Now and again, we do founder hot seats. But one of my favorite episode formats is listener questions. And we've answered a tremendous number of listener questions over the years. We've had a lot of episodes on this. And it, it's just the gift that keeps on giving. Because it's a time for listeners to participate and to hear what other folks are going through and to hear the thought process of a couple of founders, typically, who who've been there and who've done some things. And it's not that we've been through everything that they ask about, but you can at least hear that thought process of how we would approach it. And over the years, we've always received you know, positive feedback about uh, this episode format. But before we dive in, I want to let you know that at MicroConf, we are making an announcement next week. It is by far the biggest announcement that we will have made since we launched the event nine years ago. It is coincidental that the 20th MicroConf is going to be on April 20th of 2020, so the 20th to ring in the 20s or whatever, but but that's not the announcement. I've obviously already mentioned that MicroConf, Growth and Starter, are in Minneapolis in late April of 2020. But if you're not on the MicroConf list, I'd encourage you to go to microconf.com, enter your email, and we'll loop you in as soon as we have we have the info. It really is pretty spectacular, and and you probably know me well enough by now to know that uh, that I'm not you know trying to in, inflate the importance of it. Today, I answer questions with founder Laura Roeder. If you don't remember Laura, I interviewed her in episode 451. She runs Meet Edgar, which is a social media management SaaS app. And in 451, we talked about stellar growth, platform risk, layoffs, and powering through roadblocks. It was a really, really good interview. And Laura knows her stuff. I have a ton of respect for her. And honestly, I always love getting on the mic and just chatting it up with her. Super fun. I had fun in her interview in 451, and I had a great time talking to her today and hearing her insights and her take on some of your questions. So without further ado, let's dive in. Laura Roeder, thank you so much for coming back on the show. I love startups for the rest of us. I cannot stay away. Awesome. I am so stoked to have you on to answer some questions. You've actually submitted questions in the past, so it's cool to have you on, on the other side of the, uh, of the earbuds, so to speak. So we have some good questions today. As always, voicemails go to the top of the stack. I curated some questions that I think you should have some unique insight on, 
And we'll, let's just roll right into the first voicemail, which is about being a non-technical founder and how to make good technical decisions. Hi, Rob. This is Matt from the UK. I've got a question. I'm looking for advice for a non-technical founder. How can they avoid getting caught out by poor decisions from the technical team or just not knowing about the consequences of some of the technical decisions that get made to create their software? Any advice would be great. Thanks. So this is an interesting question, Laura. And, you know, as a non-technical SaaS founder yourself, I'm curious, uh, you know, what your initial take is on it. So I would first like to take umbrage with the phrase <laughs> with the phrase non-technical founder. I mean, obviously, I know uh, what he's referring to. Non-technical founder means that you are not a developer, and I'm not a de- developer. But I always think it's a little funny because I'm like, I run a software company. It doesn't seem quite right to uh, <laughs> to call me non-technical. But you know, this is a very real problem for all of us who are running software companies and are not developers because obviously you are not intimately familiar with a really core part of of what your company does. So, I mean, I guess the first thing, just sort of blanket advice for this is that you really need to have a person in that CTO role who you trust 100%. And I mean, I think this goes for any leadership role in your business, but it's especially important in this case because you're not going to be able to provide so much oversight. You know, anyone can look at a customer service email and say, okay, that was not how we want to answer, but you really can't read code if if you're not a coder. So, I mean, I think that's just sort of step one is make sure that the person in that dev leadership role, you're willing to put 100% faith in them. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to say as well. Is even if you aren't at the place where you can have a CTO, the the fact that he used the phrase, "How do I not get called out?" You know, it's like, does your team not trust you, or do you do you feel like you have to make decisions that are out of your league? Because I would almost that's an interesting turn of phrase. It it, it implies that like the team calls him out for making technical decisions, but it's like, are you making decisions you shouldn't be since you're not a developer? You know, so I would I would dig into that. But I think having that senior whether it's a CTO or the senior dev or somebody that's that really is making decisions in the best interest of the company, I think is a huge deal. Yeah, and I think it also brings up that you shouldn't try to pretend to be anything you're not, right? This, If people are calling you out, does it mean that you're pretending like you know things that you don't know or maybe making decisions that would be better for other people in the company to make. And I think it's just important to be unafraid to ask really stupid, really basic questions until you understand some of these core concepts related to writing code, right? I mean, you you can decide sort of how much you feel you need to know. For me, I feel like I've been through this process recently big time with our finance team, understanding all the financials of the business. I just ask our finance person over and over and over again. Sometimes I'll literally read a book. I read a finance book recently and I just wrote down questions for her in the margins. And then I'm like, okay, I want you to read this book too. And then we're going to have a call together where I'm going to ask you all of my questions about the book. And I think that's 
a great thing to do for technical questions as well. You know, you need to be open with your team about what you know and don't know. And I think it's important for you to work with a type of person that is very patient and very understanding in explaining things to you, you know, within reason, you don't need to understand every detail. There are a lot of concepts that are probably unfamiliar to you that you do need to understand at least sort of the basics of how the sausage gets made, I guess. I I like your example because as a founder, you don't need to know every single thing about bookkeeping and accounting and finance, but you should probably know enough to be able to ask the right questions. And I feel the same way running a software company, that I don't think you should be able to code everything in a SaaS app, but maybe it's worth going through a code, one of the code camps, or maybe it's worth on the side taking Udemy classes. I mean, it's easier than ever to learn, have a just a really basic level of coding knowledge such that, yes, you'll never be able to make architectural decisions. You won't make the, these senior level things, but you can at least relate to, oh, this is what code is. This is how it works. This is what it's like to write a bug and to spend four hours and not realizing that it's this semicolon. Like That's what development you know, that's a lot of what it is. And so I think having that cursory knowledge and being able to then ask the right questions is, is what you're touching on. And that's, that's what I like about it. Yes. So if, if non-technical, you don't like the term non-technical founder. I mean, if you're a developer and you're writing the code, then you're like a developer founder. Is it a non-developer founder? Is there a term that you'd prefer rather than non-technical? I mean, I guess maybe you just say founder, right? And then when you're explaining later sort of your your side of the business, because you also don't call, like you just said developer founder, but I've never heard anyone actually say that, right? They would just be like... I was just making up a new term right? to try right. not to say technical and non... Because typically it's technical and non-technical, I think, are the two terms people use. And I was just trying to think of a different way to say that because you're right. Running a SaaS app, yes, you may not write code, but you are more technical than most than most people we know, you know, just because by nature of being it. So it's, it is a misnomer. But if someone wanted to differentiate between like Derek and I, when we started Drip, like he was literally in the code every day and I was literally not in the code every day and... I don't know. I don't know how else you differentiate that or, or what phrase we could come up with that wouldn't feel... Because see, I don't feel like non-technical founder is a pejorative. I don't feel like it's negative. Does it have a stigma? Do you feel like it does? I actually think it does have a little bit of a stigma because I've heard people, I've heard people, obviously developers, use it, use it in that way before where you're kind of not as cool of a founder no, if you're a non-technical I think that's founder. lame. That is lame. <sighs> that sucks. I, I don't use it that way, but if it, if it gets that connotation, then yeah, we need to figure out another, another phrase for it. So cool. Well, thanks. Thanks for the question. I hope that was helpful. We're going to bounce into our second question, which is also a voicemail. It's about a founder who's launching a second SaaS app. They're nearing launch, and he's concerned about potential lawsuits. Hello, this is Thomas from Austria. I listened to the show for a long time and wanted to uh, tell you that it's really great content. I I love following along uh, your your journeys and also hear stories of of other people in kind of similar situations to my question i founded a a SaaS company three years ago Um, it provides an invoicing solution for small independent car repair shops it's doing pretty okay i can live of it and it's slowly growing so um, i'm happy with that but half a year ago i founded another company with a partner and we are building a software to compare prices for car parts Now that we want to go to market with this software, the suppliers that hear of us are trying to fight us pretty hard. So I think we 
have to go to court like several times. There is not really a legal problem with fetching the prices because we do it locally on the customer computer and they are not going through our systems. But still, they can make our lives very miserable if they pull us to court all the time. Now, I'm I'm not really sure how to go along. My partner really wants to push through that and he is sure that it will work out. I'm also pretty sure that it will work out in the end, but I'm not sure if I'm the right kind of person to spend my next one, two, three years fighting big companies. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on that and maybe what you would do in this situation. Thank you. So Thomas also wrote in and he said he wanted to clarify that he hasn't spent any money on the new project, the price comparison project, and they have a small private investor, but in essence, he has only invested his time so far. So I should preface this with, we're not legal experts. We don't give legal advice, obviously, but it's more of, hey, if I were in your shoes, how would I think through this? So this is an interesting situation. I'm not sure it's one I've heard before. What, what do you think about this, Laura? So the way I think of it is just there are pros and cons with every business, every business model, and it's really smart to go into a business with your eyes wide open about those pros and cons. So from what I understood from his message, this is a likely threat, not a certain threat. You know, he suspects that there's going to be lawsuits. He has good reason to believe that's going to happen or it could not happen at all. So it makes me think of, you know, with my business, Meet Edgar, we are entirely dependent on the social networks. And you can listen to my interview on this podcast on Startups with the Rest of Us. I talked about a big problem we had because of that. But all businesses have upsides and downsides. You know, for me, I know that I'm in a space where I'm totally dependent on these partners that I have no relationship with and that can do whatever they want. That's a big downside to my business. The big upside is I'm building on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, obviously very popular tools with lots of users. So I think that he just needs to know this going in and maybe it's something that you budget for. It's good not to be scared of it, right? It's good to go in and say, okay, you know, I know that this will likely happen. Maybe we have some money set aside for it. Maybe we've already figured out who our lawyer is so they can jump right in and we won't be surprised and, you know, spending a few months just trying to find good counsel. So it, to me, it doesn't sound like a deal breaker because it might not even happen at all, but yeah, like he said, you have to know that that is a battle that you could be fighting and you just, you have to know that that's something that you want to sign up for. Yeah. I like the way you're thinking about it. I think these unknowns, like if you've never received a cease and desist or you've never, you know, received, frankly, been sued, it's super scary. You don't, you don't know what that entails. I got sued by a patent troll about it was probably five years ago, but it was literally a blanket. It was a patent troll. It was someone who sued a hundred people at once for like having online invoicing software is what it was. And it was just this crazy. It's like, well, every, he sued everybody that does online invoicing because it was a ridiculous patent. And I got to be honest, I was super scared the day I got the email. And then I quickly realized, like I talked to a lawyer and someone was just like, yeah, this just isn't that big of a deal. And and we have these stigmas against things and and lawsuits can be a big deal and they can be expensive, but your point of it's almost like try to demystify or de-risk or just get more familiar with what this might look like. Typically, if you were to launch something like this, 
you're not going to get five lawsuits the next day, right? From five suppliers. You're probably, it's probably going to be weeks, months, and then you're going to, they're going to grumble and they're going to call you or send you an email and then you might get a cease and desist. And it's like, it, it would be a long process. And maybe, like you said, you set aside uh, money to either have a lawyer, whether it's to go to court or whether it's to, to try to negotiate settlements or whether, you know, there, there's a lot of options here. And I think this comes back to expertise. It's like, as a non-lawyer, you should have the probably ask the right, know how to ask the right questions, but you're not the expert in how this should all go down. You know, there's folks who can give you advice if you find a, if you find a good counsel. And I think the biggest question for me is, is this a big idea? Like, is this, is this a seven figure idea or an eight figure idea that's worth going through all of this for it? Or is it something that's going to generate 5k a month? In which case, personally, I, it doesn't sound like it would really be worth it. I mean, maybe I would launch it. And if, if, if it's doing a couple thousand dollars a month or 5k a month and you start getting cease and desist, well, maybe that's the point where you're like, okay, I guess I'm going to pull the plug on this. You know, maybe that's the best decision because it just doesn't make enough money. Or maybe that is your defense of it doesn't make enough money. Go ahead and sue it. You know, it's not worth anything. So I think that's really an early question I'd be asking. Not not is it worth it, but is the, is the idea big enough? Do you think the company can be big enough to make it worth fighting for? Yeah. And I think it's also worth a quick Google. So I think he said he's in Austria. He didn't say if the business would also be dealing with Austrian suppliers. You know, America is very litigious. Most of Europe is, is not. And you can't just file random <laughs> lawsuits about anything the way you can in America. So if this were my business, I would be, you can figure out a pretty good amount just from educating yourself on the internet. Would the suppliers have any sort of case? Because if they wouldn't, that's also just going to make the whole thing much more unlikely. Yep. So thanks for the question, Thomas. I hope that was helpful. And, you know, depending on what happens, I'd love to hear uh, an update depending on how you move forward. Our next question is about is about pricing and whether to try to go for more customers with lower pricing or vice versa. It's from Winslow Moore. And he says, I'm a huge fan of your podcast and all you guys do. I found you guys at the end of last year when I was going through a bit of what I'm doing in my life and I've learned so much. I've wanted to reach out for a while, but haven't because my current product under development isn't SaaS. It's just an app, a recipe book app to be precise. I'm assuming it's a mobile app. Development is nearing completion, and I'm wanting to make a landing page to gauge some interest. Before I do, I'd like to figure out some pricing scheme options, and I'm hoping you can give some advice. Here are my main ideas. Number one, make the app free with ads. He lists pros and cons. Number two, make the app freemium with paying to unlock X recipe storage. The third is make it cheap, like a dollar. And the fourth is make it a subscription, like a dollar a month or $5 a quarter. Again, I know this isn't something you normally answer questions on, but if you feel adventurous, it would be appreciated. What do you think? Oh man, I feel like I have some news that he's not going that he's not going to like to hear. So I'm, oh, I love it. I'm trying to <laughs> I'm trying to um you know, let it let him down gently. You know, this is one of the most crowded spaces you could possibly enter, right? There's so much recipe content on the internet and so much of it is excellent and so much of it is free that none of the models that you outlined gave a compelling reason for someone to pay, right? I mean, you you just said like recipe app, maybe they'll pay a dollar, maybe they'll pay a subscription. So I think you just kind of need to rethink your starting assumptions or maybe there's something you didn't tell us, right? Because there are reasons that people could pay for 
a some sort of like recipe or cooking service. Like I know a SaaS business that does meal plans for people. Like you put in all of your detailed dietary requirements and they spit out really specific meal plans and shopping lists. And there's a whole app and a subscription around it. They have a business doing that because they're meeting a specific need in the market that is related to recipes. So there are businesses related to recipes and food, but just like recipe app, I don't think is really one of them. Yeah, I like the way you're thinking about it because if he were to niche way down and like you said, build custom meal plans, that's something you can't get for free, right? Or it's or it's really hard to do at a, at a good quality or, you know, vegan meal plans or paleo meal plans. Like there are ways to think about it. I'm guessing everything I've just named is already done to done to death. But even if he has, let's say he he builds, it's not just content and he builds an app that actually has functionality that people are interested in. These one dot, like a dollar a month, you need a thousand customers to make, and I, doesn't Apple take 30%, I think. So you're really making 70 cents on that. You need a thousand customers to make $700 a month. That is a tough business. Even with App Store distribution, you would really need to know App Store SEO. I mean, you need to rank in the top, whatever, top five for whatever term you, that, you know, that has enough volume to do it. This would be a pure search play, in my opinion. Um, because at, at a dollar a month, even if your lifetime value is 10, 20, 30, $40, you can't run ads. You can't hire salespeople. You know, none of the, the standard models work. It's purely a spray and pray. And it's, I need to have enough free traffic. So I either need like, you need virality or you need organic discovery through a search engine. So really none of these pricing models are easy. Well, I'm going to go ahead and say they're, they're not viable, right? I think it's kind of polite to say that they're not easy, but they're really only viable if, if you have some way of getting that mass, which is possible. Maybe you're like, I'm going to raise a ton of funding and I'm going to be the number one recipe destination on the internet. Like someone has to be that. That's not an impossible thing, but it's going to take a ton of money to get there. Or you're like, I am the number one SEO ninja on the app store. No one can do app store SEO better than me. And I also probably have a bunch of money or some money to put behind it. So that's how I'm going to get there. So yeah, I just think you need to really look at how does the math work out to make this a viable business? And and what's my strategy beyond just like, well, I hope a lot of people find my recipe app in the app store. And even, you know, if you were building a, a SaaS app, let's say, just in general, what's the general rule? It's the lower your price point in general, the higher your churn, the harder it is to grow. This is not in every case, but it's in, I would say, 95% of cases. And that's why so many SaaS apps, the playbook is you go out, you underprice yourself because you just don't know any better. Or you don't value what you built. And over time, everybody goes up market. It's, it's a very common playbook. And the reason is because those customers, as you go up market, tend to churn less. They tend to be, you know, more more sophisticated, less support. There's just a bunch of pluses with it. But you often can't start out at those high price points because your product's not worth it at that point, right? It doesn't provide the value, and it takes you time to get product market fit with that audience, and then and then move it up market. And and I mean that's all B two B stuff. Also, everything you're saying is I don't think really even we're talking B two C. So I don't think there's really even a big up market to go to for an app. You know, there's more expensive consumer services, but I've never heard of an expensive app. Maybe it's a thing. People have done everything, right? Now I'm curious. I'm like, is there an app for consumers that costs $800 a month and is a lot more high-end looking than the other apps? I don't know. Yeah. 
I mean, I've never heard of one. I've heard of like, I bought a $25 app the other day. It wasn't a subscription, but it was, it's a teleprompter that goes on my iPhone that listens to my voice. It's the only one that I can, that turns the microphone on. And as I speak, it teleprompts automatically. Like it's, and to me that was worth 25 bucks. Now, but really, am I a consumer? Because I bought it for business purposes. You know, I bought it for these videos I'm recording. So I, and I've also bought, I bought a $20 app a couple years ago that like paired, it was before they had the, where you can pair an iPad as a second monitor to your Mac. And it was software that did that. And again, there was only one or two of them and I, I did the best one, but it wasn't a subscription. And I probably, and I would have been less likely to pay a subscription for either of those, to be honest. Yeah. And those, I mean, those are really tough models too, right? Or they're only making 20 bucks one time. Right. So thanks for your question, Winston. Sorry for the bad news, but I hope that was helpful. I'm curious, you know, if you love recipes or you somehow love that space, then dig in and figure out like maybe it's not a $1 app. Maybe it is a website that you acquire from someone to get a traffic source and then you build just a web app into there. I mean, there are other options in the food and recipe space that I'm sure there's opportunity. And I would say don't get locked into trying to pick up pennies really is what is what a dollar a month is like. Oh, I didn't actually say the name of the one I was talking about. It's realplans.com if you want to check that out. Awesome. Our next question is about recurring payments, and it's from Gavin Esplin. He says, I'm in the planning stage of a small daycare management app. One of the main features will be setting up recurring payments between the daycare providers and their customers, who are parents or guardians of the kids. I also need recurring payments for the providers to pay me. I'm a professional web developer, but I'm not sure which system like Stripe would be best to accomplish this. I'm leaning towards Stripe, but it's probably because it's the one I've heard of most. I'm not sure what other good options would be out there. Do you guys have any recommendations? What do you think, Laura? Well, there's kind of an easy part and a hard part to his question. So as far as him taking payments from customers, I say, yeah, Stripe is great. We use it. We like it. Go for it. The other part where your customers take payments gets a lot trickier because your customers need to have either, you know, it could be something like Stripe or PayPal, but they need their own individual accounts. And then are you helping them? set that up and then there's know your customer stuff that has to be complied with or do they already have their accounts so i just want to point out there's kind of a trickier question within the question do you think stripe cuz stripe connect is for marketplaces i think it's for this this instance and i've never used it but i know folks who've set up marketplaces and use it but this isn't technically a marketplace so that's where i'm not sure if kind of the terms of service would apply to him having 20 30 daycares using it and taking payments or if the know your customer stuff would pass through to him. Have you, have, do you have any interaction with Stripe Connect? No, I, I've researched it a little bit for a different project. And the hurdle that we came up with is that sort of a similar model. We thought that setting, you know, they still have to have their own Stripe account, which Stripe sort of helps facilitate. But like we thought that might be confusing and challenging for this customer to set that up, which I imagine daycare centers might have the same, or they might have their own payment system already that they're, that they're using. Yeah. So I would head to Stripe Connect and at least research it because that's the one that I've heard the most about when you're in this type of situation. Again, not saying it's going to work, but I think that's, that's where I'd start. In my opinion, Stripe is number one in this game. They just, they kill it, they make it easy. And if you can make it work with them, great. To me, my by my rules, if for some reason I couldn't use Stripe, I would look at Braintree. I think they're kind of the number two in our space for for doing this kind of stuff. And obviously you're not, it doesn't sound like he's funded. I'm guessing, you know, he's, he's bootstrapped listening to this podcast. 
But I have heard of, you know, if you look at like Gumroad, as an example, became a processor themselves. And that is a possibility. It just, there's a lot of red tape and regulation. And I, I'm guessing like one of the reasons I heard Gumroad raise their money was that it did give them, they had to go to banks basically and have a bank say, okay, we're cool with you being a processor. And if you're some bootstrap person working out of your garage, that's unlikely to happen. So it's probably not an option for you now, but you know, longer term, hopefully you don't have to do that, but that would kind of be a, a parachute option, I think. So thanks for the question, Gavin. Hope that was helpful. Our next question is from Ash Yadav, and he's looking for thoughts on joining an early stage startup just after graduation. He said, I just discovered the podcast. I'm going through one episode at a time. They're really informative and enjoyable. I recently graduated with a degree in EECS, which electrical engineering and computer science, I think, and joined an early stage internet of things startup. I want to ask, what are some tools, courses, workshops, et cetera, I can look into to get more comfortable with the industry lingo? As I recently graduated working in a two-person team right now, there are times when I have to talk to clients or talk to people who are much more experienced than me, and sometimes I feel left out. I don't have industry project management experience, an MBA, or the entrepreneurial experience to be fluent in business lingo. For example, this might sound silly, but someone recently talked to me about beta sites, and I had no clue what beta sites were. Luckily, I was able to figure it out while we chatted and made it out alive. But I fear I'll be in a similar situation again. You almost certainly will. I remember my first job out of college and I just, I didn't understand anything. So thanks. That's a great question, Ash. Interested in your thoughts, Laura. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing, Ash, is that someone asking questions is a huge sign of intelligence, not the opposite. So everyone knows that you're young. Everyone knows that you just graduated from college when you ask those questions, like what's a beta site instead of pretending that, you know, and then maybe being way off base, it's, it's actually going to make you look much smarter and eager to learn and capable than just pretending that, you know, stuff. And, you know, hopefully most of the people around you feel the same way that I do. I, I don't think you should be shy about asking questions, even if it's something that you feel is really basic, that you feel a bit embarrassed about, you know, we all were born knowing nothing. No one knew the term internet of things until the first time they heard it and someone explained it to them, right? No one is born knowing any of this stuff. So, I mean, I think people should do this anytime in their career, right? We were talking about this earlier in the podcast about learning and asking questions and asking more questions. So for me, the answer is less about courses and more just having the attitude and the mindset that asking questions is a wonderful thing. And that's how you learn. Yeah. When I graduated from college and had my first job, I thought I needed to know everything. I felt weird about asking questions and it was, I thought it was a sign of weakness. And I pretty quickly learned what, you know, what, what fixed it for me is I worked with this, this one guy who was really smart and he was senior and he knew a bunch of stuff but in meetings, he would someone would say a concept, and I remember being like, oh, I know what that is. And he would say, I don't know what that is. Can you define that for the group? And I was like, whoa. And, I res- and everybody respected him. And, he, you know, and, and that like showed me that it was okay to ask a question like that. And it was such a good model for me. And I think the thing to keep in mind is you're going to ask a lot of questions up front, but it's not going to be like that forever. Because you're just going to learn enough. You're going to learn, first you're going to learn 20% and then 60%. And then you're going to get to the point where you're 80 or 90% fluent in all the lingo. And that may take three months, it may take six months, but at a certain point, you're not going to ask as many questions. And then you are going to be seen as, I mean, you're still, you still want to ask questions, but you're just going to, you're going to be seen as more of this, you know, mid-level or senior. And you'll get to the point where you don't have to do it all the time. I think for me, 
if I was trying to learn about a new space, like if I, I wouldn't know, I don't know much about IoT, Internet of Things, um, just what I've heard on tech podcasts. So if I got a job at one, I would be probably in a similar boat and I would dive deep in the, in the IoT podcasts and some IoT audiobooks. For me, I do a lot of audio just because that's my thing. For you, maybe it's Kindle or maybe it's paper or whatever. And then I would, I would use Google a lot. So I would, I would tr- almost try to get the lingo from the podcasts or the books in advance. And then every time I heard something I didn't understand, I would Google it. And you'll be shocked at, there's only so many terms in any space. In, in SaaS, it's, hey, it's an app and there's MRR and there's LTV and that, you know, and it sounds like there's infinite. But if you listen to this show for probably 10 or 20 episodes, you're going to hear 90% of the terms that we all use. And if you've defined those and kind of committed them to memory, that's great training, I think, for kind of trying to get up to speed faster. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that advice. And I was thinking just the other day I Googled, I actually Googled the term test case. It came up in my company Slack. They're talking about test cases. And I was like, you know, I'm assuming I know what that means based on some context, but like, I'm, I'm actually not sure that I know what a test case is. So I just Googled it and I read about it and I, I figured it out, right. Part of the the non-technical founder thing. So this is, this is a skill that you want to have, throughout your career. And like Rob said, luckily it will get certainly easier and you'll have to do less Googling as time goes on. But it's something it's something to embrace, to make sure that you're not making assumptions, to make sure that you are on the same page, which is why it can be good to ask like, okay, this is, this is what I mean when I say test case. Is that what you mean? Because those types of miscommunications come up all the time. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I probably once a week, I Google an acronym. And oftentimes it's something someone posts on Twitter and it's like a colloquialism that I just don't know. You know, I mean, maybe a year ago it was TBH and I used TBH the other day. I was talking to my 13 year old and in conversation out loud, I was like, so TBH, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, what does that mean? And I was like, to be honest. And he's like, oh my, you're such a nerd. <laughs> but I find myself Googling those. So what does this mean? And then there's like seven different definitions and you have to take it from context. So don't feel like you're in over your head, Ash. I think we all are. Just because someone has been doing this for a few years doesn't mean they, you know, they know everything about it. So thanks for the question. I think it's a good one. Wrapping us up for the day. Our final question is from Z and it's about managing subscriptions. He says, hello, big fan. What recommendations do you have to manage subscriptions that come both via credit card and check? As the business is growing, I want to make sure I'm not missing out on things as people renew their subscriptions. For example, we make credit card payments through Braintree. I think he means they accept credit card payments through Braintree, but they also have people that pay via check annually and they handle stuff through PayPal. So to set the context, I was, I actually, when I first read this, I thought he was saying, we have a bunch of SaaS subscriptions. How do we keep track of those? But he's actually saying they accept payments in a bunch of different ways, some of which are annual. Uh, He says, we then use QuickBooks for all the account accounting. We want to be sure we don't miss out on annual fees. Laura, have you had to deal with this? No, I haven't. Is it all credit card with Edgar? Yeah. I mean, we wouldn't, we would just say no, thank you. If someone wanted to buy with a check, but I know that's, you know, some industries you can't, you can't do that. Yeah. We did this with drip after, let me think after we got acquired by lead pages they were set up with, we were using Stripe, they were using Braintree and they, I think at a certain point started accepting, we started accepting PayPal and they were doing these larger annual contract values. You know, you get, you get a 12 month subscription that is 20 grand and really, that's kind of an invoice uh, check situation. You, frankly, you don't want to pay the $600 processing fee, the 3%, but also the companies, you know, bigger companies, as you said, just that that's the way it works. And the way we did it, like the f- very first one, 
is it literally went into like an Excel spreadsheet that, or maybe it was a Google Doc that we all had access to. And we're like, okay, note to self, calendar reminder, and it goes into a Google Doc. And in the next month, we need to build some type of system. And then we just went into our existing, you know, because we had an existing billing code and we tweaked some things to say, oh, this is a check and so-and-so needs to be reminded. And it, it sends off an email to this, you know, AP, uh, which is accounts payable. No, 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 wait a minute. Accounts receivable, sorry, AR, at this certain thing. And we kind of hacked it together. And, it, you know, that took one day or two days of development work. But in the moment, we were able to accept the check and we knew there was a calendar reminder in case everything went haywire. And then we went back and it was like this just-in-time MVP implementation of something. And I'm guessing by the, you know, I've been gone from Drip for two years now. I'm guessing by now, hopefully they've built uh, even a, a better system because I think there are a bunch of ways to do this. And I think that that trying to build a gold-plated version from, you know, V1 is not not necessarily the best way to do it because if you only have one or two customers paying you that way, you just don't need that much infrastructure. Yeah, I, I don't have anything on this one. Yeah. All right. Well, Laura, thanks again for uh, coming back on the show. It's so good to uh, to chat with you. If folks want to keep up with you, you are at LKR on Twitter. That's a great three-letter Twitter handle. I'm so jealous. And if folks want to know uh, what you're up to with Edgar, they can head to meetedgar.com. Anything else you'd like folks to uh, check out? I would just like to say people used to be a lot more impressed by my Twitter handle. I feel like you can tell that Twitter is sort of on its way out because I, I used to get a much bigger reaction. I mean, you threw in a little comment, which was very polite of you, but I'm a little, I missed out on having a cool Instagram handle. My Instagram is Laura K. Roter, which is the most, like, I couldn't <laughs> even get Laura Roter. I had to throw my middle initial in there. So I'm just like feeling a little old that I missed the Instagram thing and no one cares about my Twitter handle anymore. That's, that's my closing comment for the show. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much. So I guess I should go register an Instagram handle is what you're saying. That's how old I am. Yeah. Uh, Get on that's that. great. Thanks again, Laura. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Next week on the show, Mr. Brian Castle from Bootstrapped Web and Process Kit is coming on to talk about just the brutal year he had in 2016, 2017, overcoming a 40% decline in MRR. And we walk through his trials and tribulations and, and dig into some, frankly, some struggles, some victories and failures. And it's a good interview. Also, I hope you've been checking out Tiny Seed Tales on Thursday mornings. That season wraps up here in the next week or so. Would love to hear your feedback or input on that. You can email me directly, questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. You can Twitter DM me. Or if you have great things to say, obviously just, just go into Twitter and let me know. I appreciate it. It's like, should we do it again? You know, I've started working on a, a season two, doing some interviews, but... If you like it, if you will listen, if it's a good fit for you, please let me know. And if it's not, that's cool too. It, it was definitely an experiment. Um, you know, as I, I said when we announced that this is by far the most time and money I've ever invested into a an audio project. And it's cool to be able to, you know, it's Tiny Seed Tales because Tiny Seed was able to make that happen. And if, if it's worth it and it's providing value, then we'll keep doing it. And if not, we always have more good ideas than we can implement. So I could obviously put my focus elsewhere. You heard a bunch of questions answered today. If you have a question for the show, you can leave us a voicemail at 888-801-9690. Or you can record an MP3, a Wave, an Og Vorbis, an AIFF. Is that pronounced AIF? I don't think anyone pronounces it that way. And send us a Dropbox or a G Drive link to questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. 
I tweeted something out a couple weeks ago and I said, if I were starting a company today, these are the tools that I would use. And I just listed, it was a five minute tweet tops. I just listed a bunch of things and then kind of looked through them and made comments and spit it out. And it's like one of the most popular tweets I've ever done. So it's, these things are both fun and infuriating where, you know, you spend 20 minutes trying to craft something and like six people care about it. And then you, you do something like this that is just off the cuff flippant and, and it gets all this traction. I think it has a hundred and 50 retweets or something at this point. But the funny thing is, is, is just the, the opinions about Dropbox versus G drive versus box versus, you know, and it was like, why not that? And it's like, it's a personal preference. They both, there's feature parity. You know, these things are not so different from one another. It's really a personal preference of, uh, unless there's like some individual, you know, sneaky feature somewhere that somebody has that you really need for the most part, it's like, these things are kind of all equivalent, but I think a lot of preference comes into it as well as pricing and stuff. Anyways, I digress. Our theme music on the show, it's an excerpt from a song called We're Out of Control by a band named Moot. It's used under Creative Commons. You can subscribe to this podcast, and you should, by searching for startups in any podcatcher you have. To be honest, new subscribers is a big ranking factor in iTunes. And if you're listening to this and you're not subscribed, even if you just listen to it on the web or you somehow download it through an FTP script that you coded up years ago, it would be super cool if you would open iTunes and just hit the subscribe button because it does help us rank higher. It helps us get more reach, and it helps us, well, it just helps us reach more people. If you haven't been to startupswiththerestofus.com in a while, we have full transcripts of all of our episodes within a week or two after after they air. We think getting the audio live is the you know number one thing and transcripts just take time to get done. But we get a decent number of, of helpful comments on the site too. So if you have a comment on an episode, you can obviously tweet to me at Rob Walling or you can come to the website itself, startupswiththerestofus.com. Check out the fancy new design we put in place a couple months ago and uh, you know leave a comment, drop us a, uh, an email through the contact form. Thank you so much for listening today. I'll see you next time.